Hello and welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley and I'm here with Peter Kadzis, my colleague. Peter, hello. Greetings, folks. We're coming to you from Democracy Brewing right outside uh, Downtown Crossing. I don't even know if it's outside. I guess it's kind of in, in the thick of Downtown Crossing, this new bar which I had not been in before. I think it's fair to say that they aim to be a combination watering hole and tribute to and center for political activism in the Boston area. It's a very cool space. Peter, have you been here previously? No, it's terrific though. It's new, but it feels like Boston. And I gotta say, those curved beams on the ceiling, they give it sort of a Prague feel. This reminds me of bars that I was in in Prague ages ago. But Peter and I are not here to talk about bar architecture. We're actually here because it's just a few days before the primary election here in Massachusetts. And we wanted to have a a sort of an impromptu pop-up scrum. We only decided to do this a couple hours ago to kick around some recent developments and size up what they might mean. And Peter, I got to start by asking you about the bevy of endorsements that have come out in recent days, both from publications and from individuals. And I'm especially interested in getting your take on what went wrong for Mike Capuano, the incumbent congressman who's trying to fight off a challenge from Boston City Councilor Ayanna Presley and lost the endorsements of both the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald, of all places, to his opponent. Uh, what do you make of Capuano going over for 2 with the dailies? Well, he obviously pissed someone off. I was scratching my head. I mean, let's take the Herald first. When you look at all the Herald endorsements, someone's having a nervous breakdown over there. You've got a very conservative to right-wing newspaper in general that's uh, going like, whoa, let's endorse the progressives. I think it's a great marketing move on the part of the Herald. Ideologically, I, I sort of don't understand how they're doing it. Looking at the Herald endorsements, you'd think it was our old Boston Phoenix, you know, who's the lefty of the day. What about the Globe? Um, really damning Capuano with faint praise as they gave the nod to Presley. The Globe editorial endorsing Presley and not endorsing Capuano, to really understand it, I think you have to compare and contrast their endorsement of Trahan. The woman running for uh, Congress in yeah. Nikki Sangas' old district. Right. The, the reason I say that is if you look at the glowing terms in which they evaluate Nikki Songus, who is retiring, I don't understand how they couldn't apply those same terms to Mike Capuano. What kind of terms are you talking about? The two of them were in Congress for more or less the same time. They point out what a great job Nikki Songus did, which she did being in the minority for so many years and how difficult that is. You know, in their endorsement of Presley. And there's a case to be made for Ayanna Presley. I just don't think the Globe made it. They just sort of gave Mike Capuano short shrift for, if nothing else, you know, all the money he's brought into the district, which, by the way, they did mention, but I don't think they gave it the proper weight. They should have done a straight identity politics endorsement. Like, good to have an African-American woman in Congress? We should have a woman It helps that she's an African-American, and that's why you should vote for her. The way in which the Globe dealt with Capuano, I thought, was intellectually dishonest. 
you know, I don't think they gave him a fair shake. Peter, I got to stop you there because we have several voices that we should bring into this conversation here at Democracy Brewing. Scamwell Tarley, that is not his real name, but you will know his pseudonym if you pay any attention to Boston politics or Massachusetts politics on Twitter. He is here with us at the table. Uh, can I call you Scam for short? Of course, yes. Scam's great. And I should mention that uh, Scam actually is the host of a new podcast. What's the name of the podcast and where can people find it? And what is the, what's the conceit, Scam? So uh, the name of the podcast is called We Need Some Milk. Uh, it's actually me and a fellow buddy of mine. We call him Babu. And he is from New Jersey. I am from Massachusetts. The big aspect of the pod is combining New Jersey and Massachusetts politics we ended up finding out that a lot of this, this, both states have a lot in common when it comes to machine politics. We're on our 10th episode, so that's it. We've also got Gin Dumpsius from the Springfield Republican and Mass Live. Is that the preferred introduction, Gin? Well, I, I work for Mass Live, but I'll, you know, I, my work appears in the Springfield Republican, so, so both works. I think anytime I interview, I manage to, to butcher it and get it wrong. Over there, we have Mike Dean, who's just sort of hanging on the margins. Uh, WGBH News, the State House correspondent. Mike Dean, can you say a brief hello and then you can go back to more interesting conversations? <laughs> hey, it's uh, great to be here. I'm glad to see you guys coming downtown. Scam, Gin, and Mike, I'm interested in whether you guys were equally unimpressed by the Globe's endorsement of Presley. I am not entirely positive how much sway the Boston Globe has when it comes to endorsing in races like this. I don't know how many voters there are out there who are on the bubble enough that the Boston Globe is going to land them on one side or the other of that bubble. If you weren't committed Diana Presley already, I don't know if the Globe giving you permission to vote for her is going to be what, what gets you down there and, and turns you out. Gin Dumpsius, what did you think about the Globe going with Presley over Capuano? And, I should note, Capuano, as Peter discussed a moment ago, Capuano not getting the endorsement of the Herald, either. Well, I think I'll quote one of your colleagues, uh, Dan Kennedy, who said recently in a piece on editorials, he called them unsigned and often unread. Editorials in a newspaper, when they're unsigned, cause more trouble in the field for reporters than they're worth. Dean is going to laugh because he's heard me rant about this constantly. I think a lot of people do not necessarily differentiate between the institutional official endorsement and what a reporter believes. I think anybody who's worked in a newsroom can tell you that you know, getting reporters and editors to agree on something is a, is a pretty tall task. But to outsiders, they assume if the Globe's editorial page is you know, liberal, conservative, or whatever, then that means it's reporters must be too. You know, same thing with the Wall Street Journal, right? They have a very conservative editorial page, but they also have some of the best reporters who, when I was an intern there in 2005, I couldn't tell which way they voted. They were just damn good reporters. Same thing with the Boston Herald too, by the way, we should know. Yes, absolutely. All right, Scam? Uh, I think it's funny that no one's acknowledged that the Globe has never endorsed Capuano since he's run, so I think that that speaks a little bit to the, the circumstances of the race. I I think it's funny that they endorsed Ayanna Presley, but they didn't endorse Josh Sagum in the same breath. I, I think that speaks more to the editorial board. It, it certainly speaks to the Globe's effort in trying to recognize her race, and they did that the best they could. I, as Peter mentioned, I think identity politics was something that should have been recognized. I think they were hesitant on doing that. They played it safe. They should have took risks. Has uh, the Scamwell Tarly Twitter handle 
endorsed in the Presley Capuano race. I do have a position. I, I think that Michael Capuano has done a great job. You know, I can't, I'm not going to disregard his record, but I'm at that point now where, based on the issues locally, I am concerned that they're not being recognized on a much higher level. Am I going to vote for Ayanna Presley? Yes, I am. I am an African-American. I'm young. I am male. I, I, I think that she speaks more to what I'm dealing with, not necessarily in a day-to-day, -day, but a yearly basis. I think Trump has done an effective job in trying to mobilize this base a little bit, whether it's Presley or Capuano, but I'm ready for some youth. I'm ready for some spice. I love to learn something new every day, and it never occurred to me but Scam is right. The, the Globe, to my memory, hasn't endorsed Capuano, and that's interesting, and I'm, I'll keep my theory about that to myself. I understand, and in a gruff sort of way, applaud the, the news guys who diss the editorial page. <laughs> I was once one of them. But in a race that is probably going to be this close, if Ayanna pulls off an upset, and it would be an upset, I think one of the key factors would be the Globe endorsement. Just because it, it keeps her momentum going. You know, just talking to people on the street, some of them who were definitely Capuano supporters, said they sense momentum with Presley. And that, if for no other reason, that would give the Globe bragging rights. I want to ask everyone sitting at the table right now, what other subplots you might be keeping an eye on? There's a whole bunch of funky developments to follow, whether it's Joe Kennedy deciding that he's going to campaign for Capuano, or the uh, challenge that Jeff Sanchez is getting from Nika Eligardo, which I think Statehouse News just reported is the most expensive primary in the state. What else are you especially intrigued by? I'm going to be looking for what's the margin for Governor Baker? I think you and I were at the Republican convention. Peter was there too, Mike, and and we saw the way he reacted uh, in the hallway to Scott Lively's uh, 27 percent. I think we all expect the governor to win the win the primary there, but the question is how much and and what's what's the pivot going into the general. I gotta ask, since you brought up Scott Lively, uh, do you think that Charlie Baker should have debated Scott Lively in the primary? I mean, that's that's a you know, campaign strategy question. I don't get paid for campaign strategy, so I'm, you know. All right, I'm going to cut to a man who does get paid for campaign strategy. That's Scamwell Tarly. Uh, no, the reason I'm going to use Scam is because you were shaking your head in disgust when I asked again if Baker should have debated like I did. I think that a democracy only works when you actually have engagement and to know that Charlie Baker laid it out pretty clearly. I'm not doing anything until late August to see that we're, we're getting here now and he's already launched his campaign a little bit as if he didn't have a primary appointment. It was shocking. It was, it was well, shocking. Let me push back a bit at that, though, and then throw to Mike Dean. Couldn't you make a case that what Governor Baker did for democracy was actually good? Because Scott Lively is a guy who says that Nazism was caused by homosexuality. He's a guy who says the pro-life movement has failed and abortion is still with us because America continues to grant excessive religious freedom to non-Christians. He's got some really, really noxious views that are beyond the pale of what we're used to seeing when it comes to state politics. And I think a case can be made that it's a civic good to not give those views a hearing. Mike Dean, what do you think? I think most of the Republican Party that didn't vote for Scott Lively, which, you know, 
as Gaines point, what Baker's margin is going to be here, that portion of the Republican Party was not clamoring for a debate between Scott Lively and Charlie Baker. There are very, very few people who were on the margin between the two trying to make up their mind that needed a clear delineation of their platforms and viewpoints to, to move forward with the Republican Party in this state. Whether or not Baker did it for the good of democracy or whether he did it for the good of his campaign, uh, I'm not prepared to answer. But I, I don't think this is the end of... Uh, of democracy in the Commonwealth. All right, since I'm with you, Mike, uh, give me a subplot that you're watching closely over the next few days, an electoral subplot. Yeah, I'm really curious to see uh, the coattails of Marty Walsh and the electoral heft that the mayor brings to the these campaigns. If you know, Mike Capuano doesn't really get it done, uh, if Dan Coe up in the congressional district, his former chief of staff, doesn't finish very well, we're going to have to see, you know, what happens with the, the mayor's ability to build a Menino-esque machine uh, to support other candidates. And it's worth noting, his track record at this point isn't great, right? He was with Warren Tolman, who lost to Maura Healy in the Democratic primary for AG a few years ago. Uh, he was with Martha Coakley, who came very close to beating Charlie Baker, which is something a lot of people, myself included, tend to forget, but she didn't beat him. And uh, he was with Hillary Clinton, and that didn't go well. Exactly, and it makes you wonder what uh, is Marty Walsh's brand when it comes to statewide electoral politics or congressional electoral politics. Should he ever decide he wants to run for governor? Peter Katz, I see you wanting to get in here. Do you have a fascinating subplot you want to float? Yeah, I mean, the Scott Lively issue fascinates me. I usually like to be cold-blooded and pragmatic about politics, but we all four of us, Scam wasn't there, but at the Republican convention, we were all sitting schmushed together when, you know, there was a Scott Lively press availability, sort of impromptu. I, I have to say, he's a very smart and articulate guy, but as an aspiring Christian, I saw the devil that afternoon. I mean, I saw the devil that afternoon. I've never been face to face with political evil, and I'll just leave it at that. Scam, let me ask you uh, if there is some subplot, twist, other race that you're fascinated by. I mean, I'll be honest, I think one of the races I am looking at is the Massachusetts Senate race. I think we're gonna find out very quickly how fast this wants to get nationalized, in particular, because once you have a Republican nominee and you have a Democratic nominee, it's that's it, it's the two of them. People are going to be paying more attention to that. I think that we're going to find out very quickly how real is MAGA in this state. And, you know, me personally, I'm a little scared. You know, I know there's those pockets out here, but I think one of the subplots for me personally is that race and seeing how that turnout shows up. I'm probably not alone here. I'm going to predict it gets nationalized instantly as soon as an opponent is uh, is coined. In fact, I would say it may already have been nationalized because I get text message alerts from Jeff Deal all the time talking about how he's on Fox Business or Fox News. I think I've gotten similar alerts from the other candidates. So, you know, Elizabeth Warren is public enemy number one for a lot of Republicans. So I would say that thing goes from zero to 60 right away. That's a fair point, but I also think that, you know, as an observer of what's been going on, I'm willing to sit here and say I don't think that Jeff Deal is at that level of national politics where he has managed a campaign in the way that he needs to to do that effectively. So you're saying if he's the nominee, he's not ready for prime time? He's not ready. He's, he's just not ready. 
we'll see. You know, I've been unimpressed so far with the campaign, and the nationalization of it is, as Scam said, that that's going to be the big show. I've been impressed by Elizabeth Warren's two big policy initiatives. I say impressed, not to endorse it, but I think what we may say her her take on reforming corporate America and in effect, you know, taking political influence and money out of politics, I think could be very high-minded because in the state that among her base that's evenly divided between Hillary Clinton supporters and Bernie Sanders supporters, these are two ideas that have a lot you can chew on. Now at a later date, you and I will probably do a, an episode on the, the policy implications of this, but as this is going to introduce the potential for a sort of a high level of debate here that when the mud starts flying, I think will serve her well. I want to wrap this up with sort of a indirect homage to David Bernstein, who when I worked with him at the Phoenix, used to like to stand up in the middle of the newsroom. Peter, tell me if I'm remembering this wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. David liked nothing more than to stand up in the middle of the newsroom and tell everyone who was listening, and even those of us who weren't, that some prediction he had made two years earlier, four years earlier, six years earlier, whether it was about where a given politician was going to end up, how a race was going to be decided, that that prediction had come to pass. He was not shy about celebrating accurate predictions. So in the spirit of David's shameless gloating about accurate predictions, I'm wondering if the four of you, Mike Dean, Gindumsia, Scam, Tarly, Peter Kadzis, if, if any of you have the guts, as David did, to make a bold prediction, or some multiple predictions, about what's going to happen on primary day. You have to remember, David's now freelancing. <laughs> Most of us are collecting a steady paycheck, and I plan on, at least for a few more years, doing so. Look, the last prediction I made was on the eve of the New Hampshire primary, when I said that if Donald Trump won, he would win the Republican nomination, and they had a better shot than most people realized of being elected president. I'm gonna sit in my laurels. Um, I think Massachusetts, by and large, likes its incumbents, and I think um, a safe prediction is uh, the incumbents are gonna be okay. Are you including Mike Capuano in that general pool of incumbents? Well, if I keep it vague, then... <laughs> Don't answer! Don't answer! Artfully right. done. Uh, I, it's a bit of a cop-out, but I will predict that post-election uh, primary season and election season here in Massachusetts, we will be so federally oriented for the next two years that it's going to make your eyes bleed. Uh, we're going to have the Elizabeth Warren for President campaign. We're going to potentially have jockeying with people like Seth Moulton and Joe Kennedy. We're going to have all that noise coming down from New Hampshire as their primary season heats up. Uh, and we're going to probably have talk about Charlie Baker, the moderate who maybe just won by 800 points or, or 800 percentage points and uh, is you know elected in a, a blue state and maybe he's the anti-Trump. Wait, hold up. I was with you nodding enthusiastically, <laughs> pumping my fist at all your great points until I heard you say that Charlie Baker is going to be talked about as uh, a Trump slayer. 
do you really think, A, that there's a, a market in the National Republican Party for Charlie Baker's approach to politics, uh, and B, that if there is, that he'd be interested in tapping into it? To your latter point first, absolutely not. This would be Charlie Baker kicking and screaming into the national spotlight should he be so dragged. Uh, to your previous point, I think there is a market. I think it is small and it is dwindling, and figures like John Kasich pretty much occupy that lane already. Uh, and that lane may be getting smaller and smaller as the you know the, the, the Trump hold on the party continues. But yes, there will be a minority of Republican voters who are looking for a Charlie Baker-like figure to lead them. Uh, and I, I do not think he will have the interest, but it may not be up to him. All right, Scamwell Tarley, heavy is the head that wears the crown. You get the last word here when it comes to predictions. Uh, you look like you don't have one front of mind, so I'm just going to ask you. You're hoping that Ayanna Presley beats out Mike Capuano. Do you think she's going to do it? I think she can. I think that, as you know, Pete mentioned earlier, there is you know this motivation that he's heard from a lot of voters. I think that as much as from what I have seen, Capuano has done a good job trying to say, look at all these national endorsements I have. I think if you looked at the local ones, you'd see that I don't know if there are many there per myself. I, I don't know. Yeah, you got you got uh, Joe Kennedy, newly endorsing him. You got, you got Deval Patrick. You got Marty Walsh. Those are some big political names. Let's talk about right in the district. Right in the district. I don't think you have seen that. I don't think you've seen a lot of people say, oh, I am fully with Capuano. Like, he had to bring in John Lewis to do some, you know, identity politics outreach. I, I think that speaks more to how he has kind of fallen on the wayside of his district, not realizing the changes have been happening in, in that Kaepernick tape. I, I think that that alone represents, oh, man, how a fair... I don't know if it's a fair point, but how out of touch is that? You're talking about the video where Congressman Capuano said that he thought that Kaepernick taking a knee during the anthem was counterproductive and making it worse, even though he was sympathetic to Kaepernick's cause. Like Capuano saying he was sympathetic to the cause, but he didn't essentially didn't like how it was being conducted, would represent, as I routinely tweet, you are not listening. Like that is not the issue here. The issue is, is is that this is how we this man gets this message out. If you're concerned about that, then you're not really listening to the issue. And, and I think that will speak to people of color. I think that will speak to younger people more. You know, the NFL issue will never die. So, you know, I, I, I think saying that, you know, to know that that clip came out several weeks before the primary and we don't have a poll between that tape and now to see if there was any real shift. I would like to think that there might be, and, and you know, my prediction is she will win. It's going to be tight, but you know, she should win. You know? Peter Kansas, last word to you. Skim makes an interesting point, and I, I do think uh, Joan Vanaki a couple of weeks ago with us made this point too. There is a real generational subtext here. Uh, I'll tell you, the weekend after Presley announced she was running, I conducted a little straw poll around Jamaica Plain, and what I found was that people under 45 tended to view people in Congress a little bit like widgets. As long as you were a Democrat, that was fine, and you know your 20 years of service might not be as important as what your personal background was. 
translation to younger people, identity politics made a difference. And I do think that the NFL issue, you know, one point that David Bernstein would make is that popular culture has a huge impact on politics. And uh, we'll see how important that NFL moment was or wasn't. All right, that is going to do it for this uh, very special pop-up edition of The Scrum, which came to you from Democracy Brewing in downtown Crossing and Temple Place. Peter Kadzis, Scamwell, Tarly, Gintoutis, Dumpsius, and Mike Dean. Thank you all for taking the time to chat about this stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Please subscribe to The Scrum. If you haven't already, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast content. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. I'm Adam Riley. Don't forget to get out and vote on Tuesday, September 4th.